At the onset of the COVID-19 outbreak, top cybersecurity agencies issued warnings that cyber criminals were stepping up their efforts in attacking the healthcare industry and people working from home. But government agencies weren't safe either. The World Health Organization was unsuccessfully targeted by hackers in March, and the Department of Health and Human Services was targeted in a separate cyber attack around the same time. Yeah, and in April, the World Health Organization reported that it has dealt with five times the number of cyber attacks this year than during the same period last year. That includes an attack where 450 active email addresses and passwords from the organization were leaked online. If cyber criminals are attacking the government, then you know financial institutions are at the top of their list too. That's right. According to researchers with security vendor Carbon Black, attacks on banks and other financial institutions increased by 38% between February and March. Attacks on financial institutions accounted for 52% of all attacks observed by Carbon Black. As the world continues to deal with the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, how can financial institutions protect themselves from cyber attacks? We asked CSI's Vice President of Internal Audit, and he said, So I think training is, is critical right now. We, we have to be ensuring that we are passing on this critical information to our employees all the time so they know what the attacks are that are out there, they know how they're being exploited, and, and they're prepared for that. I'm Andy Goldstein. And I'm Laura Sewell. We're talking cybersecurity in the age of coronavirus on this episode of FinTech Focus from CSI. Here to educate us on what financial institutions can do to protect themselves from coronavirus-related cyber attacks is Steve Sanders, CSI's Vice President of Internal Audit. Welcome back to FinTech Focus, Steve. It's always great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate that, Andy. What are you seeing out there? Like, what are some of the most widely used cyber attack methods that you're seeing that can be related to what's happening with the coronavirus pandemic? You know, that that's really an interesting topic, I think, because it's it's kind of like the old saying, the, the more way the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's really what we're experiencing here because no doubt social engineering is the hottest, most impactful attacks that are happening right now the the attackers are exploiting this in great ways and you know in the in the words of Rahm Emanuel never let a good crisis go to waste the social engineering <laughs> hackers are looking at at every single crisis they can to exploit it and we see that with natural disasters such as hurricanes or tornadoes or earthquakes or whatever but but we're seeing it to a larger degree right now, I think. I think that they are they're recognizing the vulnerability we have in in the human operating system right now based upon a crisis and they're exploiting that. And of course, building on that, we're seeing them use these attack methods to distribute malware and they're doing this following these COVID themed attacks. And and so we're seeing a lot of that happen. And some of those attacks, when they go through, they're using them to distribute ransomware or key loggers or credential stealing software or in cases things like uh, RATS, which that stands for Remote Access Trojans, a real baddie out there. And and then the other thing that, that's really interesting related to that is they're also capitalizing on desktop sharing clients that are out there. And, and sometimes they're distributing uh, infected desktop sharing clients. We're seeing more and more of that 
and you know the the list here really goes on and on, Andy. I mean, there's they're attacking the work from home environment in some cases, and, and these work from home environment environments were sometimes put up in such a rapid fashion, maybe even a rushed fashion, that they may not be as secure as as they were in the past. And we've all heard some of the exploits around this. Uh, for example, they're looking for weaknesses in VPNs and weaknesses in the remote meeting software like we've already talked about. But then we've we've heard of these Zoom bombs and these attacks against this meeting software that's out there right now. And then, of course, the, the other thing that plays into that, too, is because we're all looking to meet more remotely, the attackers know that. So they're sending invites out to us asking for meetings remotely or perhaps even training. There's a lot of people that need training. And so there may be a training invitation come that, that comes in with a remote meeting software attached. And of course that remote meeting software is an infected file. So there's really a lot of attacks happening right now, but, but the one that is, that is really the most successful in gaining the most traction is the social engineering. So to elaborate on something you said earlier when uh, talking about not letting a good crisis go to waste. So that in combination with social engineering, are you saying that that hackers are sending out emails that look like they're coming from, say, the, the Centers for Disease Control or the World Health Organization and trying to get people to click in links of emails that, that are built to look like mails coming from the government? Oh, a absolutely. Yeah. Th those attacks are incredibly effective right now. And in some cases, those those particular examples you just gave are coming through with attachments that are infected or links to websites. And, and if you go to the website, there'll be a button to click to download a report, which enables a, a macro that infects the computer. Or one of the other really interesting ones, and this is often linked to the WHO, uh, they're they're sending out an infected uh, Excel spreadsheet that when you open the Excel spreadsheet, it asks you to enable macros so you can see the data that they're sharing with you, which locally infected people or whatever it is. And and our curiosity is so strong that we want to we want to know what's there, and so we enable those macros and of course infect our computer. So are these attacks more effective than than typical? Uh, phishing or spearing attacks like I guess uh, you know obviously we're, we're reading the news here and we see that some of these attacks have been and you just said they've been very effective so like what makes these particular coronavirus related attacks different from other cyber attacks what makes them more effective you know I, I think that there, there's a couple of ways to answer this and both are, are going to get to a point that I think is important and number one is that we are so desperate for information right now that okay. we're going to take information any way we can get it, especially if that information aligns with our own fears or our own confirmation bias. We we want whatever we think to be true, and so we're, we want to seek that out. And you know, the the funny thing is that the hackers are basically out there doing their own forms of A/B testing, a, a common marketing technique to <laughs> find out which tactic works best against which group. But the, the other interesting thing is in marketing, it's costly sometimes to do those A-B tests, but for hackers, it's not. They can actually send you as many variations as they need to to find out what you're most susceptible with. And it reminds me of uh, President Obama's uh, second 
run for president, he, he used social media in a great way at that point in time. And, and when he did, he, he quickly latched on to things that didn't work, and he aborted those and moved on to the things that did work. And that's what the hackers are doing. But but this also plays into something I've been talking a lot about in presentations I've been giving lately, and that's the principles of influence, that, that we as humans are so wired to fall for these things. And this, this happens in everyday uh, marketing. I mean, when we, when we go to a store, if there's an item that, that isn't available, we all of a sudden want that item. And, and a great example of that is the toilet paper crisis of 2020 Yeah, mm-hmm. because of COVID. And, and everybody wants more toilet paper because they can't find toilet paper. So we are seeing some of that happening, that scarcity principle. But authority, and you touched on this already, is the one that's really getting us right now. When the CDC or some doctor or the WHO is publishing something that is that seems to be desirable to us or information we feel like we need, particularly if it aligns with our own preconceived ideas, we just get sucked right into that. Let's talk about the psyche of these hackers what is it that's in uh, that's ingrained in in these people that will take advantage of such a horrible situation and people that are already suffering so much what i mean can you shed any light on that that you know what allows these people to do this kind of thing yeah i, I think i can actually I, I don't think that this is a much different, frankly, than than the business world in some cases. There are good business people and there are bad business people. And we've seen examples of that throughout this crisis already. People who have hiked up the price of toilet paper mm-hmm. to $20 a roll because of supply and demand, and that's how they justified it, totally taking the human aspect out of it and distancing themselves from how they're hurting others. Or the gentleman in Tennessee who bought, what was it, like 500 things of hand sanitizer or something like that mm-hmm. and yeah. tried to sell it yeah. back and they wouldn't let him do it. Yeah, it's terrible. Right. And, and he, he frankly, he felt justified in what he did. Mm-hmm. In fact, he even said he, he was providing a service. Well, mm-hmm. in the case of the hackers, I think that they are, they are distancing themselves from how they're hurting people and, and only looking at this as a business. This is just a way to make money. And, and that's one of the unfortunate things on the internet, frankly, Laura, is that we, we don't see who we're talking to. And so um, when we only communicate through the, the lines of a telephone or, or worse yet, through a typed screen, we, we, we soon begin to look at that person we're communicating with as not human. Gotcha. I, I don't see the impact I'm having on them, so it doesn't matter to me. Right, right. I hear you. That, yeah, that's what I think is happening. Well, that makes sense. So with all these new attacks the sophistication uh, with which they're being carried out. What are some steps that every institution or more specifically every CISO should be taking to, to combat this, th- th- these attacks uh, right now? Well, that, that's a great question, Laura. And I, and I think that there are a lot of things that need to be on a CISO's radar. And in fact, the institution as a whole, all senior leadership need to be thinking through this. And, and the first thing I would say is that assumptions that have been made in the past may no longer be true. This is what's called a black swan event. And for those that don't know, a black swan event is is this extremely rare, severe, widespread event, and it, it has some major or severe impact 
on everything. So we're experiencing a truly black swan event. And that means everything that we assumed was true uh, December 31st of last year may not be true now. We may not have prepared for what we're facing right now. So I think that's the first thing to think about. And with that, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the human aspect of this, and that is a real big risk. So I think training is is critical right now. We we have to be ensuring that we are passing on this critical information to our employees all the time so they know what the attacks are that are out there. They know how they're being exploited, and, and they're prepared for that. But it really goes beyond that, too, because there are truly a lot of technological risks out there right now. For example, are your work-from-home employees being adequately protected? Have you considered that what does it what does it mean that they're not behind your corporate security necessarily? Are your patches being deployed? What about your security tools? Are they functioning like they're supposed to with everyone working from home or for those who are working from home? And then this is a big one. Are, are you more at risk for a di- distributed denial of service attack because you effectively have more employees who are VPNing into your mm-hmm. network and then going back out. So your traffic is already higher. Are you more susceptible? And then, of course, we get back to this this human aspect and, and what are our employees vulnerable to? And, and maybe could a, could a hacker convince an employee to install a remote administration tool right now? I mean, those are all things that, that we really need to think about. But I think it all comes back to two, two primary po- – well, three primary points. One is training. Number two is realizing all your assumptions may not be true. And number three, how how is your security functioning in this new world? Have you considered the, the impact that has? You're listening to FinTech Focus. We're discussing coronavirus-related cybersecurity threats with Steve Sanders, CSI's Vice President of Internal Audit. Looking back at or, or going back to, um, you, you mentioned VPN usage. Um, that's something I'm hearing a whole lot about. Um, what can institutions do to address that particular issue? Well, that, that's really been a challenge for, for a lot of companies and, and financial institutions alike. And in, in many cases, there are, there are reports that people are having a lot of trouble getting VPN set up in this, in this quick uh, rush scenario. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm pleased to report that, that within CSI, we, we have done, a, I think, a very good job at helping getting people up to speed as fast as possible on VPNs. But, but I do think that we need to change our thinking around that a little bit. Uh, going forward, at least for the foreseeable future, we are going to need to be able to have as many employees as possible working in a in a remote situation and that means everybody needs to be able to work from vpn and our systems need to be able to handle them working from vpn and then to build off of that a little bit there may be cases where an employee doesn't necessarily need to be on vpn to do their job 50 percent of the day well maybe we we train them not to be on vpn during those points in time but if we do that how are we ensuring that they're secured when they're not on the VPN? And that's a big deal because in many cases, our primary security systems reside on our network. And when they're not on the VPN, they're not behind those systems. It sounds like you're saying that overall, it doesn't seem like, I guess, the world really was prepared for this black swan event. 
um, from a cybersecurity standpoint. But where do you think financial institutions fall in there? Like, in, in your overall opinion, do you think the the infrastructure, the uh, the protection on remote working capability. How how do you think financial institutions as a whole were prepared for this event? And then what would you say to the leaders of IT in financial institutions? Like what advice would you give them going forward to prepare for something as, as monumental as this event? I, I would tell you that, that in some ways, financial institutions were better prepared than most companies and in some ways they were not. And, and let's discuss what we, we've already been talking about, and that's the remote work capabilities. I don't believe that had you asked any financial institution six months ago, what's the possibility that you're going to be looking for ways to move as many of your employees to a remote work situation as possible? What, what's the, the possibility that's going to happen? And most people would have said it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. And when you were, when you were thinking of pandemic historically, you were thinking, well, how am I going to do without employees who are sick? But many institutions weren't thinking about how am I going to deal with social distancing? That's a good point. So that, that that is a new way that we've we we've really been woken up to. Uh, the, the impact of the preventative measures. So I do think that there was a weakness in financial institutions that way. However, the, the, the financial institutions are ahead of the curve when it comes to security most of the time. And, and that means they're using premier products in many cases that are already functional in, in this different world that we're living in, whereas cheaper products may not be. So there are indeed some cases where they were more prepared, and in, in some cases they were less prepared. And, and then finally, the, the other thing that I think has been a real challenge is that our IT departments have put so much assurance in that perimeter security, and in some cases that's not protecting us now. So, so you also ask, what do we need to do going forward? Well, well the first thing is we, we don't need to assume the future is going to be just like it is right now. But I do think that the immediate future will be. We can, we can fairly safely say that for the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to have some changes in the way we work. And that means we need to, to be evaluating everything we're doing, and, and we need to ask, okay, where where am I less secure now than I was December 31st of last year? And where has my security not changed at all? And where might my security change going forward? And, and of course, built into all this is functionality, too. How, how are my users impacted? How are my customers impacted? That's another big thing that we've not even touched on. But we, we've got cases where financial institutions have not even yet moved into the digital age, believe it or not. And they are paying for that right now. And so how do you how do you do everything you can to not only protect your own staff, but to protect your customers as well? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Steve. Can we touch on what financial institutions can be doing for their customers at this point in time, uh, especially around education? We talked about education for employees how can financial institutions put out some education for their customers to keep them safe from these uh, coronavirus-related cyber attacks? Oh, I think that's a, that is a great question, Laura. And I think that we need to take a page from the book of the hackers here. Uh, the hackers are exploiting this opportunity for bad. 
we need to exploit this opportunity for good. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, we we have a captive audience right now. We have more of our end users, more customers of our financial institutions are are ready and willing to pay attention than they ever have been before. Whether that means by offering them remote training, whether it means uh, putting together video events where, where their customers can log on and see other people and have a little bit of fun while they're there and then get some training as well, or even simply emails that are addressing COVID statistics or COVID facts that they need to be aware of, which of course then funnel them toward where we want them to go and that's not falling for these attacks. And so so that really handles everybody. But then you've got this other little aspect of this that's not being talked about a lot right now, but that's our business customers. And, and so we spent a lot of time talking about how our financial institutions have had to pivot so quickly. Our business customers have had to pivot quickly too. And that means everything that they did in the past is no longer the same either. So we may be we we may need to educate those customers a bit on how they need to be sure their controls are in place for wiring um, decisions. Things that that are exploited heavily already in the world. Wire fraud is a big deal, mm-hmm. and it, I, I suspect we're going to see more of that as we go through this because things are all different right now. And at our financial institutions, we aren't seeing the people like we were in the past. So uh, there's a a higher possibility of that. So there's another good education opportunity there to, again, reach out to this captive audience that's hungry for data and give them data. But but the thing I would caution everybody against is while, while our clientele are hungry for data, they're not hungry for boring data. (laughs) <laughs> what they want is for you to entertain them and give them some sense of normality while you educate them. That's great let, advice. Let them, people, let them let them interact, let them have some fun, entertain them, put together good videos. Uh, there's all sorts of opportunities right now. And, and again, we're going to go back to Rahm Emanuel's uh, statement, which, which can be certainly viewed very negatively, but this is a crisis that we don't need to let go to waste either. We can use this to, to give better education than we ever have before. I agree. And, and you know, you, touching on making this fun uh, for customers, trying to find ways to engage them in a fun way, I would say that's also another um, way for institutions to show that, you know, their community support, that, that they are a big part of their communities and serving as a resource and um, a little levity in this, in this dark situation. That, that's, that's an excellent point. And I, I do occasionally talk about this in, in a number of the talks I give, but I think the financial institutions need to recognize that your communities look to you as the experts of everything. Mm-hmm. You you have a natural leg up on every other business in your community because you are viewed as something uh, held to a higher standard. And right now, it's a really good time to utilize that for the greater good of everybody. You're listening to FinTech Focus. We're discussing how financial institutions can protect themselves against coronavirus-related cybersecurity threats with Steve Sanders, CSI's Vice President of Internal Audit. I think this event is very similar in impact to something like 
like if you look at September 11th and that day's effect on how we viewed security at the airports and and everything that kind of that just changed the way that we fly and the way that we think about security, you know, physical security. I think this pandemic changes the way that businesses think about cybersecurity from a general sense, but then more specifically, like you mentioned earlier, the the ability to work remotely. And not and you made the, you made such a great point in terms of you know so many businesses think about how to deal with the you know how to deal with the pandemic when it's there but maybe not so much preventative measures like social distancing and i think this this pandemic is going to wake everybody up now and it just it's going to change things forever what what kind of influence and effect do you think this will have and i know you you mentioned we're kind of going to be even though you know cities may open back up you know, slowly but surely, it, it's it's going to be at least twelve to eighteen months, I think, before we feel like we're truly back to normal. So, in that time, with with people still working from home and and things still not feeling the same as it was, what kind of effect will that have on on financial institutions and and just businesses in general uh, going forward as they try to return to some semblance of a new normal? What's what's the cybersecurity world going to look like? Uh, that that's a great question, and, and I I think that t- let, let's begin it with this. Life is like a rubber band, okay? Once you strip that rubber band, it never goes back to its original shape again. Hmm. And we we have stretched the rubber band. Yeah, and so we we have a little bit of insight into how how our day-to-day lives might change and this isn't cyber related but it but it helps us to to at least understand how cyber may change too if you've traveled in airports in the last five years or ten years you notice that often there are people from other parts of the world particularly the asian countries who are often wearing face masks in airports mm-hmm. and much of the reason that are, that they're doing this is because they were part of the SARS pandemic. Mm-hmm. So they, they now recognize the importance of protecting themselves from illness. So if, if that made such a lasting impression on a group of people, what else is going to make this lasting impression? So uh, on this topic, I, I frankly think we could fill a whole podcast talking about what the <laughs> future looks like here. <laughs> but, but I would say there are a few things that are really easy to, to talk about. Number one, we were already moving toward cloud adoption on everything. But how is this going to impact that and make that um, maybe increase with a faster adoption pace? What about things that we haven't talked so much about, like security on demand. For example, you may not need VPNs, but once every five years, do you really need to pay for them all the time? Or are we going to see a more of a security on demand scenario happening? That's really and interesting. And how are we – yeah, how, and that, that actually goes uh, beyond just uh, software like VPNs or even hardware clients. But think about um, how we secure our institutions. Right now, many institutions are relying on an IT staff of one or two employees. And if one or two employees both get sick, what do you do to protect your institution? Yeah. 
And so I think we're going to see a wider adoption of using managed service providers to supplement what we're doing in our own institutions. Because I think I think we're recognizing now that we can't rely on such a small staff at a time like this, particularly when those staffs have had to do things like set up VPN clients and are just working themselves like crazy yes. right now, uh, some of the more overworked people. And then finally, I think one of the big changes we're going to see is that we're going to see security coming back to the workstation in a larger way. We've talked some already in the podcast about how we have in the past had security at the perimeter of the institution. And there's a a saying in the IT world that you you often have a hard, crunchy outside and a soft, gooey middle. And hopefully we we don't have that necessarily in in our institutions today, but but I hate to tell you, many do. And, And so how are we going to bring security to the user instead of to the institution? I think those are all things that we're going to see big changes on. So, Steve, we've we've covered a lot of information, uh, a lot of fantastic information during this podcast. But if you could give one piece of advice uh, to every CISO out there as we continue to go through this challenge, what would it be? I think that is that's a great question, Laura, and I I think that it really comes down to this: allocate time regularly to consider all that has changed lessons you've already learned and mistakes that either you or others have made and consider how you are going to address those going forward. You have to pull yourself out of the tornado every once in a while so you can see how you need to adapt and evolve in this rapid moving environment. That's great advice. I think that's something that we all actually can take to heart. Um, uh, myself included, with with so much going on, we've got to take a step back every once in a while. And I have to say, like when, when you were bringing up the, the the toilet paper and the the Emmanuel quote and all that, I think I think Steve is angling for a job on the marketing team. I don't know, like I think he might he might be wearing he might be able to wear multiple hats at this company. I'm telling you, he already knows about AB marketing. He know that's what I'm saying. I mean, he's, he's full of good ideas. All right, Steve, got in for our jobs now. Cut it out. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking with us, Steve. It's always good to talk to you. Oh, it, it is. I appreciate it. You guys do a great job. Thank you, Steve. And that's it for this week's episode of FinTech Focus. Thanks again to Steve Sanders for talking with us. And we appreciate all of you for listening. For much more insight on the topic of coronavirus, check out our website for blog posts, videos, and a helpful crisis management roundtable. That's all available on csiweb.com. And you can also enjoy previous episodes of this show on our website or wherever you download your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another episode. But until then, get the latest from CSI on Twitter, at CSI Solutions, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash CSI Solutions. We'll see you next time.